everybody. Welcome to another episode of Rhythm and Bay Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jasmine Ellis. Who does the most? Did you miss me? Has it, has it been a while? Did you guys think that I gave up on my dreams of being a podcaster? No, I gave up on y'all for a little bit. I was mad at y'all, honestly. You hoes always say you're going to listen and then you don't. I'm kidding. Please don't leave. Don't leave. I'm kidding. But I have been listening and trying to figure out what exactly it would take to get more engagement outside of the, the loyal y'all that listen already. And I realized y'all have an insatiable appetite for murder. So today's episode is going to be the first in a series I'm calling Rhythm and Bay Goes Behind the Murders. Uh, shout out to VH1 Behind the Music for the inspiration for that. So we're going to dig into murder for the first time on our Off the Record segment. But before I get into that, let me backtrack a second and introduce my lovely guest for the day. Hello, hello. How are you doing, Matt? I am so happy to be talking with you, Jasmine. How are you? I am good. I am so excited to uh, be interviewing you. You are someone I've just creeped on on the internet and just already am like, we're going to be friends. Like, we're going to meet and we're going to be buddies. I just know this. <laughs> I'm glad you got a good feeling. That makes me really happy. Because um, the thing that I've noticed off of our mutual Instagram stalking of each other, which has taken place over months, this is an ID channel mystery unfolding in front of all of us. Um, the thing that I've noticed between the two of us is that we are two brown girls who are not afraid of some blush. Yeah. We know how to glow. Yes. This is very important. I am so happy that blush has come back in fashion because I was such an old lady. Like, okay, I've been doing makeup for, oh my God. Uh, like I literally just quit. So I started doing makeup when I was 16 years old and stopped at 32 years old. And I was such an old lady because everyone hated blush when I was in high school and in college. Everyone was like, no, it's all about contour, contour, contour. And it was making everyone's face look hollow and mm -hmm. made us look older. And now I love that people are into blush. What is your thoughts as just like, and by the way, y'all, Matt is a super funny, accomplished comedian. But I, I love when, I, this is the show is all about the versatility of funny people. We love music. We love life. We love art. We love makeup. What are your thoughts on blush on the nose because I don't like it. I don't think it is for everyone. Mm -hmm. However, I personally, I like it on me and I like it on a lot of actually on a lot of uh, thin people who got round features because mm -hmm. you need to add fullness, but you don't want to do it with highlight in the front of the face. And so by having blush near the front of the face adds this roundness uh, without you having to do a ton of work. It just adds this fullness by keeping the color up front. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's very smart. Is it, is it just me or like, okay, have you noticed these videos that compare like makeup today from 2016? Are these people, okay, was makeup that bad in 2016 or were these hoes just heavy handed and 12 years old? You know what I mean? I, get I honestly think it's the second one. They were all literally, they just got their first period and their first case of brow dip. And they yes. did not use it. They didn't know. I'm also very much against the idea of putting like brown gel eyeliner in your eyebrows and saying I'm done. That's kind <laughs> of a problem to me. I'm against that. Well, not everybody has brows like you. They're magnificent. Well, thank you. But these are literally applied with like cement and mortar. Like <laughs> it's so hot outside and my makeup is so heavy. It slid off last week and killed somebody. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I love it so my much. My makeup fell off and hit them and they never got back up again. 
So you do a little bit of everything. You're into makeup, you're into comedy, and then you really piqued my interest because you have a background in music too, right? Yeah, before I, because I've spent the past five years doing stand-up here in the city of Chicago and having a blast working every club. You have no idea how proud I am of myself that I got to be a paid regular at every club in town by the time I was drinking age. That's one of those achievements that I'm just really proud of. Some people start comedy at 21. By the time I was 21, I said, hi, you know me. How old were you when you started then? 17? I was, I was 18 when I started. I was a, I was a baby. I was a baby when I started and for seven to eight years before comedy from 11 to 18, uh, I trained me an opera singer. I sang in nine languages. I had two different teachers. I sang in vocal competitions all over the Midwest. And uh, I even sang in a uh, university of Illinois choir up here and I've uh, sung in some uh, big theaters uh, in Chicago. This is amazing. Like you've just, it's at 21 years old, it feels like you've led like, th I mean, first of all, you've had three whole ass careers. Like I don't- Absolutely. Like, I've like, been working full on careers, not jobs. Hmm? I've been working for a living in some way or another since I was 11 years old. Cause those vocal competitions I won as an adolescent paid for me to move out of my small town to Chicago. It wasn't my parents. It wasn't some uh, uh, charity. It wasn't um, a grandparent. No, it was me. It was me, me and my hard work. So now at 23, I really get to enjoy some of that hard work and get to feel like I'm a little further ahead than maybe some of my peers, which is, which is nice. That is exciting. That is, uh, I can't wait to dig more into like your background story when we get into the next segment, but I am gonna, so have you listened to the podcast before and you won't hurt my feelings? It feels like nobody does. <laughs> have you listened yet or had a chance to? Not quite. That's okay. So what I like to do is we have a three-parter with this one. The first segment is what we like to call, um, it is our music history lesson. And each episode, what I like to do is tell you the history behind a song that is infamous for a certain reason. Like one of our last episodes we talked about, it wasn't even a song, it was more just the concept of a time in music. I love talking about this. It was when parental advisory stickers became a thing in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, because of that bitch Tipper Gore. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who led a very sad life, but it's just so funny to think that one day she was listening to Prince's darling Nikki and was like, take this away from all the children. And that is why when you buy, uh, you know, songs at Walmart, you get that. So we're doing our first segment about murder in the music industry. And mm -hmm. there's a lot to unpack. Um a lot of different stories of people who have murdered people, people who have been murdered, and uh, and then people who have been accused or involved in murders. So I'm going to start with one of the most infamous tales of the time. And I know you know, it sounds like you are the opera guy, but like other genres of music, do you like pop music, hip hop, R&B, rock? You know, it was very interesting because uh, I, I got the voice from my grandmother. And so the music in the house is always very classical and very old school. And so mm -hmm. I never really got to develop my own taste about rap music and about pop music and about R&B music until I was a teenager and a young adult. I had never really like sat down and heard a like uh, Bone Thugs record or a Mariah Carey record until I was 19 years old. Like I had to catch up on the 90s as like an adult because I was busy learning very, very complicated music in nine different languages. 
See, that is one of the funny things that gets on my nerves about music snobs, and which is why I usually don't like most people's podcasts about music, is they act like if you don't know something that they consider common knowledge, like, okay, I didn't grow up listening to the Beatles. I heard my first Beatles song when I was like 23 years old. The only They're reference too I had- They're good of a goddamn mood. They're so fucking cheery. <laughs> well, you. it's about yeah, to- Yeah, who gives a shit? Who? Who? <laughs> Ringo, would you believe? Ringo, you're tell me about life, Ringo. Would you believe that one of the cheeriest bands of all time has like some dark ass backstories? Uh, one of my favorites is: Have you ever heard the theory that Paul McCartney's been dead for like thirty years? No, but I love it already. <laughs> okay, so this was I brought to my attention puppet. by. He's dead. Yes. he's been dead for thirty years. He's just a puppet. There's like who, there is a theory that Paul ass. McCartney has been has been dead since like the 60s and oh my god i just dated myself so bad because i think i think everything is 30 years ago when in actuality i think that is like 60 years ago (laughs) but yeah so apparently apparently paul mccartney's been dead like since their first album was made and he was replaced with a stand-in and there's the whole paul is dead theory it's right up there with the conspiracies around john lennon's murder So John Lennon, of course, one of the original members of the Beatles. A lot of people contribute him to being like the greatest singer songwriter of all time. Uh, I feel like a lot of times people are the greatest songwriter and then we let them slide on the singer part. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, really? Yes. There are some clear cut examples throughout history. My first one, primary example of that is Burt Bacharach. Oh, my God. He wrote some of the most beautiful. Yeah, he wrote some of he wrote pretty much all of Dionne Warwick's greatest hits. He wrote all of Dusty Springfield's greatest hits. He wrote some of the most beautiful pop music that came out in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When he sat down at the piano to sing, you wanted to put your dog down so it didn't have to live to another day. Oh, (laughs) that man couldn't sing. Wrote beautifully. Could not sing. You know who I feel the same way about? And this is a mm. co- very controversial opinion. Th- mm. Like, this is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan has a Christmas album. <laughs> Why do I See, not I know that? I didn't have to make a joke. All I said was Bob Dylan had a Christmas album, and you have to change your panty liner. <laughs> That's all I had to contribute to the conversation, and it's already funny. Just imagine what that sounds like. Just imagine I mean, what that sounds like. There was a period of time, like before we got so cynical. I blame I blame social media for making us more cynical, but like pre-social media, like people used to love Christmas albums. Like never forget Macy Gray made a Christmas album. Like you could be a one-hit wonder, and if your one hit came out in November, you released a Christmas album the next year with like covers of the same, like, by the way, her yeah. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is just like ingrained in my brain because we would play it every day on, when I used to work at Glamour Shots and she just had that like, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was horrible. I have never ever come across any medical or scientific proof that she's not slow, as we say in the country. <laughs> She seems a little touched. She just seems like she might have a touch of the spirit in sort of a um, Zion Methodist Episcopal way, if we're going to reach back in our vocab. I just always wonder, like, who was like, this is a voice the world is missing. Like, everyone sings from there. Not who said she could sing, but who said, we're going to let her dress herself. (laughs) 
Because the past 20 years have been really upsetting as far as what she considers to be an outfit. I have not seen a I have not seen a recent picture of Macy Gray in so it's like long. It's like Stevie Nicks, but like Burlington Coat Factory. It's it's a lot wrong and very little right. I will say what's so beautiful about it though is like no one forgets her. Like no one has yeah, forgotten any. Like you know what I mean. We don't think about her, her but then last we think album about it. Is actually good. There are a few tracks on it that I really enjoy. Just like Jenny, she, she the few the last album wasn't bad. Ruby, that's a good track on it. Okay, yeah, no, I'm kind of obsessed with her wardrobe. There's, I'm looking at this polka dot nightmare, um, and she's mm. got these like these fingerless gloves. And you're you're right, it is giving black Stevie Nicks. And you mm. know, we deserve the right to just honestly, it's giving Stevie Wonder. Like it doesn't look like she's. Looking at it. <laughs> it doesn't look like she's looking at it. She, you know what I mean? I feel like she goes in the closet and goes, this is how I feel today. Like she mm-hmm. just touches it like you would a crystal. And she's like, I feel good energy from this blouse. And then she wears it. You know, if you saw her since you're in Los Angeles right now, if you saw her at Ralph's, you would take a picture with her and send it to your husband. And you'd be like, oh my God, I ran into Macy Gray. But if she didn't already have a recording career, your husband would just think you were taking pictures of random people who didn't have homes at the moment. <laughs> just thought you were making friends in the $3 wine aisle and just kind of having a great life. Oh God, like some type of like, some type of ghetto LA version of Humans of New York where I'm just like, hi, person who's unhoused. Let's take a photo. <laughs> Oh, that would yeah. be like, that would be some peak TikTok narcissist shit. I have like, I mean, I'm a little, we're all narcissists. We're comedians. You know, we love to be heard, but oh my God, uh, where I live is like TikTok Mecca. Like everywhere I go, I just see someone walking around, talking into a phone, not looking where they're going. And they just kind of like, they're constantly half wandering into the streets. It's like Pokemon Go, but like, there's just like the... the <laughs> The misery in their eyes when they hit stop is like you just you see the it's just, <laughs> it is really scary to watch in the wild. Like I refuse to make a TikTok outside of my home for this exact reason because I just don't want to be somebody somebody's thirteenth reason. You know what I mean? Just look around and they're like, oh no, exactly. there's no reason to be here anymore. This like is what we are now. TikTok, you're going to see a joke that I wrote and something that I thought about. Like, it's going to be contained. Instagram is where you're going to catch me out in the wild. Yeah. Instagram's great for the stories. That's where you get my impromptu. But you're not going to catch me making a 60-second long TikTok out in the wilderness. I'm not joking Foster and Nell. Like, there's no reason for this. It's the dancing for me that does it. And like, no, I just, the, the idea that it's like, I got to keep up and do the idea that everyone else is doing. And then there's every two days, there's like an argument over who created the thing. But it's like the whole point of the app is to copy. Other, I don't know. I've been on, Jasmine, have you had this happen? Like the gravity of what you just said. TikTok has made black people not want to dance in public anymore. This Damn. is a big deal. This is history. Damn. I'm, I'm going to call Kamala. I think she should be made aware. <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to oh, get man. her that piece of information and a new sew in. That's my plan for 2022. She, I, that is my good sis. Um, we are both members of the same sorority. And like, I, I literally hadn't paid to be an active member in years. But before her inauguration, I was like, oh no, y'all can't take this from me. Let me go ahead and pay my little check. 
That way they can say Jasmine Ellis is an upstanding member of Alpha Kappa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you just yes. send you send them $125 real quick. And if anybody asks a question, you just say that utility bill was some shit. <laughs> I am I'm definitely not one of those wives who has to explain anything to my husband. He's just like, okay, babe, you just do you. Like, you know, like you we just this is bad. We do not like share finances at all. I'm just like, my money's my no, money. And bad. your money's that's our amazing. money. <laughs> that is amazing. That is smart. I, I don't care if I marry like uh, uh, Prince Harry after he leaves Megan because he likes light skinned girls. I, um, <laughs> what does she have that I don't? Don't you fucking answer that. Um, <laughs> like, it I doesn't matter who I end up with, my money is mine. You mind your goddamn business over there with your Xbox and your fucking Popeyes and your whatever else. No, my money is mine. I don't want to end up like John and Yoko wondering where the money split and with the New York apartment and the, no, 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 it's too complicated. Speaking of which, oh my God. I, <laughs> see, this is why people can't trust me for historical accounts. Like where, where were we? Okay. The murder of John Lennon. On the evening of, of the 8th of December, 1980, English musician John Lennon, formerly of the Beatles, was shot and fatally wounded in the archway of the Dakota, his residence in New York City. His killer was mm -hmm. Mark David Chapman an American Beatles fan who traveled from Hawaii. Chapman said that he was angered by Lennon's lifestyle and public statements, especially his much publicized remark about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus and the lyrics of his later song, God and Imagine. Chapman also said he was inspired by the fictional character Holden Caulfield from J.D. Salinger's novel, The Catcher in the Rye. Chapman planned the killing over several months and waited for Lennon at the Dakota on the morning of the 8th of December. During the evening, he met Lennon, who signed Chapman's copy of the album Double... Damn! He asked for a signature. He That's got up close shady. and personal, made eye contact, said, how you doing, homie? Well, probably not. It was 1980 and he was white. But he <gasps> said it was good. Or, no, not even that. Sorry, I'm too black and modern. Um... <laughs> I used to get so defensive when people would be like, you don't know the Beatles. I'd be like, I was busy being black. Like that was my, exactly. my reason. But I revisited some things as an adult and I'm like, this is good music. There are some great parts and there's some good things. But like the, the idea of like, whenever we measure anything in modern music, we go bigger than the Beatles or more hits than the yeah. Beatles or they've shattered the Beatles records. And it's like, they're that, sta they're that standpoint for what is. Well, so uh, they were the band that had like the most number one hits, I believe, because like the records that and I could be off on this because other people know a lot more about R&B history than I do and pop history than I do. But I think the records that like Elvis Presley and Mariah Carey were beating with number one hits were trying to beat the Beatles as solo yep. artists. Yes, they were. Okay. Yes, they were. So as solo artists and I mean, the only person uh, the so only solo female artist to ever like get anywhere close to those levels is has been Mariah Carey. So it's yeah, it's, she uh, has nineteen number one hot Billboard one hundred hits. I uh, are I'm you a, a lamb? Producer. I might be. Um, I'm a, I'm <laughs> I realized I am recently. <laughs> Listen, us light skinned girls got to stick together because Erica Badu got her own fans. Um, 
No, because I'm a co-producer on the YouTube channel, um, I Love Aretha Franklin, for the Explain series. So any, uh, and that series by itself has about a million views um, amongst the dozen videos or so. So anybody who loves R&B music, who's like into the history of it, who maybe already watches that channel because we're lucky to have a lot of subscribers over there, might know me from there, actually. So when we talk about Mariah and Aretha, I act like I don't know what I'm talking about because I was an opera singer, but I've done a lot of work to really make their work super primary and learn a lot about their techniques and get a lot of information about that out. We're actually working on redoing our Mariah video right now. Oh, that's so exciting. I, I, I've probably watched some of that then. I didn't realize you were connected. That is so funny. Yeah, Small. the Dionne Warwick explained, Aretha explained, uh, Michael Jackson explained, uh, uh, you name it, we've done them. Okay, very cool. So for those of you who want to like make that transition to watching more like visual content on this, check out the YouTube channel. Uh, give, give me the name again one more time so I say it exactly right. I love Aretha Franklin. That's all of I, I love Aretha Franklin and anything that's got explained in the title, I've helped co-write and produce and bring out. I'm the voice teacher in there. My lovely co-producer Malik makes it stylistically beautiful and edits it, but I'm like all the hardcore info about okay. the two vocal cords. Yeah. So we have R&B like royalty here. That is, what? look at you, look at you. So uh, backing it up, I just want to finish up on the, the John Lennon murder story while we got it, because here's the interesting thing. So I'm telling you guys just what Wikipedia has when you come up on it. Um, they say that later that night, Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, returned to the Dakota as they approached the end of the building. Chapman fired five hollow points and was bullets from a 38 special revolver, four of which hit Lennon in the back. Chapman remained at the scene reading The Catcher in the Rye until he was arrested. How insane is that? Like, just sat there and read a book. Lennon if was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital. hollow point bullets, you're dead. Because Selena only got hit with one. So mm -hmm. four, you're out. You are out for the count. Because hollow point bullets, you know, go through you faster and with more velocity because there's nothing in the middle. It's crazy that, like... Um, that Yoko was okay and didn't get hit because they were like, they were, you know, standing side by side. That's insane. She causes problems. She doesn't get caught in them. She's smart. She's okay. shit. She does not get her hands dirty. I'm a firm believer that I feel like Yoko has become a, vi a villain of history for like no reason. I think John Lennon was just like, I think he was a flaky kind of guy and had his own things going on and was going to quit the Beatles regardless, but people blame her for the split. Well, it well, listen, I don't know that she caused the breakup of the band, but it's sort of like how, okay, we all know that a man does not leave a relationship if he does not want to leave a relationship. You can't force a guy to cheat. You can't force a guy to leave. He has to want to or be unsatisfied. However, back in the day, they still used to name the other woman in the divorce suit. So yes, did John already have some dissatisfaction in the Beatles? Yes. Did Yoko Ono alienate his affections? I would say. Hmm. That is an interesting like way to speak on it. Like, if you look at his primary marriage at being the band, she's the other woman. You have to look at it from that perspective. If his primary marriage is to the band and is to his talent. That's a great point. You, uh, That is a really great point and an interesting point at that. But I just, I do feel like we have this knee-jerk reaction. Like you said, we did blame the other woman, like in suits and stuff. But it's, it, it's 
one of those things that I don't think result works both ways. You know what I mean? Like no one ever says that Jay-Z is the reason Beyonce loved Destiny's Child. You know, it's just never even entertained. I think we just mm-hmm. like to villainize women. And it's just like, it's the idea of like, you know, when you go to like terrible straight weddings and mm-hmm. they have like, I don't know if I'll I've do this in the Midwest. I've never been to a gay wedding, so I've only gone to terrible straight ones. <laughs> Okay, so I don't know if y'all do this in the Midwest, but in the South, we have the groom's cake. So there's the bride's cake, and then a groom's cake is like a loosey. It's usually chocolate. Honestly, everybody wants the groom's cake better anyway. Like, wedding cake kind of tastes like nothing. Anyways, the groom's cake, they like to do these humorous drawings, and these humorous little statuettes of like a bride dragging the groom, because that is the nature of straight relationships. A woman pulling a man away from everything fun and good and positive in his life. Kind of like, you know, there are people who talk they shit about melon, um, melanin, <laughs> Megan, about Megan. <laughs> <laughs> you mean melanin Markle? Megan bringing the melanin Markle? Because, <laughs> oh my God. If I call that melanin, high yellow girl, Megan melanin Markle. and hydrated Markle. If you're going to talk about her street name, if you're going to mention her rap album, you need to get the name right. It's just a matter of respect. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny as the blackest thing that has been in the royals like she is just the melanin oh no it showed up but it was so little of it and it was too much for them um, what i will but- say about that entire situation with her is that it really jarred me to see mm-hmm. somebody lighter than me as another biracial person get the too dark treatment because I always thought it was random when I would get it as a mixed person. Like, oh, they're just mystically deciding I'm black today because most of the time they think I'm Puerto Rican and don't ask questions. Like, mm-hmm. But to see someone like two shades lighter than me get it, the way she gets it was really interesting and jarring. Yeah. I just think when you pride yourself on the pristine whiteness of your world, you notice everything different, every stain, if you will, on it. Um, mm. But it's the same thing where people think that she's the reason Harry left, like he didn't have any um, any choice of his own or any own, like they not in the sense the reason of like she motivated him or she mm-hmm. helped him make a decision, but in the reason, the sense of like almost like this this uh, enchantress. You know, we yeah, always we take that's what I to. It's exactly that's so smart because like that's where I wanted to bring it back with Yoko, where it's like I think because she's not white, she got mm-hmm. you know, just sort of like this exotic temptation. Because I believe John Lennon was married before, and he was married to a what? I think Paul was married to a woman named Cindy, but like they all had yes. like wives from England. And mm-hmm. then I think that maybe because he didn't move on to like an American girl, or didn't move on to another British to a respectable woman, white that it was girl, sort of a big deal yeah like he was leaving the band to go be crazy to to mm-hmm. to go make weird music by himself and and you know be weird to be anti-war and super political and not make mm-hmm. the the happy go lucky i want to hold your hand type stuff you marry a girl who is 10 years old when hiroshima happened and you're anti-war after getting to know her what a fucking shock what a <laughs> fucking shock what a bright idea Oh, what a thought. She tells you about the terror her entire adolescence was, and then you're like, we should maybe not blow people up, and you're the bad guy. I think that speaks to 1970s American culture when we're dealing with Nixon and we're Mm -hmm. dealing with, you know, this sort of uh, uh, post-JFK sort of we have to stomp out communism sort of Mm. mindset. 
I think you're a hundred percent right. It also because music exists sociologically. It exists yes. like music is an effect of the culture. It happens out of what's already like on the ground as far as protests, as far as unrest. And so for him to have his consciousness sort of um, awakened by this woman, and then for that to be seen as a bad thing, I mean relate that to all the other feminist conscious raising that was happening around the same time that's saying this is drawing you away from your primary responsibilities, whether it's the Beatles or your husband. It's, it's mirroring. It's parallel. It's a lot of mirroring. I think that's kind of also speaks to like in the 70s and even now still with heterosexual relationships, how it is mm -hmm. so the norm for a husband to have a wife and not listen to her. Like that's normal. It is normal to take a female partner and she's supposed to compliment your life. She's supposed to make the pot roast for when your boss comes from dinner. She's not supposed to introduce you to things about her culture, her life, or her opinions that change your way of thinking. Like the idea that's what of a I man want out of a partner. Mm -hmm. Why can't I be straight? Why can't I be straight in nineteen fifty three? Um, I mean you you do you, boo. <laughs> Don't, do me. don't ask me questions. This is my castle. <laughs> Remember that so we... notion that a man was a king in his castle that no one was allowed to like question him? I remember my grandmother telling me that the whole time she was married, she was married for 38 years, I believe, to my grandfather. Whole time they were married, she never said no. She said, I don't see it that way, or I would try this, or maybe we should look at it over here. But she never said no. Wow. That's yeah. the world. She got married in 1957 as an 18-year-old woman. And for 40 years, she said, well, are you sure about that? That was as much resistance as was allowed. That is, I'm so glad we're a world away from that. I, I am so glad we are a world from there. I mean, I mean not always, depending on who you talk to, but I, I, I'd like to think relationships are more balanced. So speaking about balance in the universe. So one of the things that I think is so interesting is, is all of the controversy around this. There are people who honestly believe it was conspiracy. They believe that it wasn't investigated enough. Um, there's even, um, there's an entire, there's several books about it. Who Killed John Legend? A Conspiracy by Fenton Bresler is a very popular Who Killed John one. Lennon? Not John Legend. John Legend is alive and well with Chrissy Teigen. I said Lennon. I swear to God, Lennon. I said Lennon. I you said Lennon. Did my mouth say Legend? <laughs> What is my tongue doing today where it is, it is making my mouth, my tongue is like too big in my mouth or something. And it is making me say things blacker than I mean for them to be. Like it was, <laughs> it was melanated Markle first, then it was John Legend. <laughs> yeah, I was in, I was in Atlanta for a week and things are just too different now. I don't know who I am. I can't, I can't even talk about white people. I just be freaking <laughs> Oh, oh man. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, no, people think he didn't. All these conspiracy theories. Like, I wonder if it's like JFK where they think there was another shooter. Uh, yes, that's exactly what it is. They believe there's another shooter. They believe that it was not investigated enough and that it was a cover up for the state killing him. Let me find this. Let me find. That's really <laughs> Let's edit interesting. Up I sort of think that by the early 80s, because that would have been before Reagan, who would have been President Ford, I don't think he was in the habit of killing people. He was, because uh, Gerald Ford was a male model before he was president, so I think he was just finding his light. I think he was mm -hmm. just on the phone with his wife and finding his light. 
I don't know. I watch too much scandal. So now I believe that every president uh, is a spy and kills people first before they get the presidency. Like, did you watch scandal? I, okay. I watched, okay. So I watched the first couple seasons of scandal and this is how young I am for the beginning of scandal. I was in high school. Stop it. (laughs) Me and my mom used to watch scandal together when I was in high school and I was like 17 years old. No, I don't. Scandal is a very adult experience. Like this is, this speaks to like youth or not youth. I was 24. So I'm not that much older than you, but I'm a little older than you. I was 24 and I was dating a guy who was 40. I don't know what I was going through. I just, he, he approached me in a box. some tight pants. That's what you were going through. There was something about him. He gave me like a Richard Gere energy. And like, you know, at first he was like, the, here's the thing is like older guys start thinking about money a little too much for me. And I'm like, we're still in the courting process. Why are you wearing Velcro shoes? about group bonds. Like he was just, I, if I'm going to date an old nigga, like I want to be traded. Okay. Nurse, nurse, I need an IV. I'm dehydrated. He just, I'm sorry. If you want to date a woman 15 years younger than you, like she's going to expect to have that sugar daddy experience, not that actual dad experience. And he like brought his kid to my job. It was stressful. But anyways, you don't want the situation. You do not want the situation where you're dating an older guy who doesn't act his age because the longest relationship I've ever been in, like as an adult and like we lived together and stuff was with a guy who was 15 years older than me. And by the end of the relationship, I literally felt like the single mother to a teenage boy I couldn't stand. Because mm. all he did was play video games and scream. That's all men do. They just play Xbox and scream into the middle of the night. That's all I've noticed. Straight, My husband gay, loves- bisexual, or indifferent, all they want to do is get in a group chat with strangers and say, ah! until 1 a.m. <laughs> Oh if man, you my have husband, two he balls, won. that is the bottom of your desires in life. They all come down to that. Just an just, Xbox and ah for just umpteen hours a day. I don't know why. I guess it's because they don't know how to have just like regular one-on-one conversations. So they're like, this is our time to chat and catch up. But I guess I'm gonna also fake kill you while we do this. Yeah. Like, oh my you're my best friend so much that I can't wait to fantasize about murdering you while you're vulnerable and weak. <laughs> Oh, like, what, man. what is that? What is um, that? But yeah, that 40-year-old dude I love, I, I did loved, I did not love him. I dated. He loved Scandal. And that was a weird little plot point was that the president of the United States had like killed a bunch of people as part of a mission. And that was like his guarantee that he'd be president. Fitz was such a, not only, he had no backbone, no spine and no eyebrows. And I still no. rooted for him. Now, I knew, you're bringing back a lot of memories now, I knew uh, about the actor who played the president because his name was Tony Goldwyn. Mm-hmm. And he was a very, and I mean top tier, uh, dramatic actor on Broadway for like mm-hmm. 10 years beforehand. And when you're an opera nerd, you have to know about Broadway because that's what's happening in New York. So I, re- I knew about Tony Goldwyn. He's considered like a sex symbol. And has been since like 2003, despite the fact he has no facial features. Not one. None. None. He he looks like, he always looks like he's not done cooking. You know what I mean? Like when you ever watch those videos of, of, of a, like a doll being made and they show mm-hmm. before they yeah. finish. 
I don't understand. Like he's just like he's like a Gumby man if made out of just peach clay. If he took me out on a date and he was nice and he paid for it at the end, I would say I like you. I'm gonna call you Biscuit Dough. <laughs> Come on, Biscuit. You can get him at the fridge. You can get. You can keep him in the fridge. Buy him at the grocery store for four dollars, but he needs twenty minutes under four hundred degrees to come alive. God, I would give anything to be. You know that sex friend, that friend who you talk to after good sex, and you're like, "Girl, guess what? I would love to be in that situation just to call you up and be like, "How's how's Bizquick doing?" <laughs> like, just there you go. How's Bizquick? How's he doing? How how's Uncle Jemima? What's what's going on? Oh oh man. Tony Goldman, uh, what a, what a, what a, I, I don't know what his appeal is. Rhythm and happy, happy. <laughs> That's why this show is for, is for people who love music, but are not nerds about it. Because if you're going to be there like, you bitch, you never finished talking about John Lennon and you called him John Legend once and I hate you and I'm coming to your house to be Catherine the Rye. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now terrified of Catcher in the Rye. That is also some media I was, was busy. Oh yeah, you know I, I was I was reading Zane novels. I completely I... missed it. I took AP English and everything. Completely missed it. What What in the book makes you murder people? I'm curious. Well, there I think there's a teenage boy in it who's very much trying to find his own way in the world. So I think independence means murder. I don't know. Uh, that, that's all I can put together. That is very, honestly, the Jesus angle made more sense. Like you said, you were bigger yeah. than God. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let you see him. You know, I can see like that's some thug shit you would say. Yeah, but like, like that's like if somebody saw me do the bit in my act where I say I grew up Southern Baptist and my first crush was on Jesus because when they put me under the water, I said, you got me last. Like, <laughs> is that blasphemous or is that just me saying I have a preference for skinny Jewish guys? <laughs> like you could, you could go either way with that. Like you can get your feelings you like hurt and try and hit me with some hollow point bullets, or you can realize, listen, he's looking for a single rabbi. You can go either direction. <laughs> I like the idea of uh, of Chapman just being a repressed man who just mm -hmm. needed to hook up with a sweaty guitar player and didn't know what to do with himself. He needed Melissa Etheridge after a bad night. He needed a sweaty guitar player. You know, breaking a bottle against a bar. Somebody will tell him some secrets, you know. Right. <laughs> because, like, you think uh, about that. If you think about mm -hmm. that, if the guy who's the lead of this most successful rock band of the decade says that he's more popular than Jesus, doesn't that get more people to want to find out who Jesus is? You would think. Also, like, you can't, what is actually going to happen if you say you're more popular than Jesus? You know what I mean? Like, also, does Jesus need to be popular? He didn't say powerful. He didn't say I was more powerful than mm. God or heal more people. God is more popular. Like, I mean, like, I've always said this. I love God. Can't stand his fans. Soup the worst. <gasps> like, you know what I mean? God and Rick and Morty have the worst fans. I would rather uh, not. <laughs> I would rather not spend any time with people who are fans of God or Rick or Morty. They're, they're, they're like equally toxic, bad, terrifying to me. I just, 
No, like I'm really, I vibe with that. No, that's serious because like as, um, as a comedian, it is very, very rare to find somebody who like is a spiritual person that like is tied to a specific religion. And I found that some of the most honest conversations I've had and some of like the realest conversations I've had with other performers have been with like Muslim men and women because like they're pretty much the only ones left in stand up who are like gonna lead with it. And mm. so me being a gay Christian who doesn't really want to talk about the second part, I'm like, you go, you go be brave. You're Christian too? You go be brave. Good for you. That's, I mean, I just like, I keep it to myself because it's just like my version mm. of Christianity doesn't fit in a lot of people's boxes of like mm -hmm. hate this and dislike this yeah. and uh, think that everything in this, like, I, I mean, I'm a Christian who buys crystals because like God made rose quartz. I'm not mm -hmm. <laughs> like... You know what I mean? And like made the stars and placed them in different ways. Yeah. So like God made me a Pisces. Like I, I, I think that I was every a joke right now, but like the whole reason that I grew up Southern Baptist as opposed to Pentecostal, the way my grandma grew up, is because my grandma needed to listen to Frank Sinatra and Barbara Streisand and Dinah Shore and like non-Christian music the same way she needed to breathe air and drink water. And so she mm -hmm. couldn't be one of those uptight religions her whole life where you couldn't experience outside culture. She couldn't handle it. She needed the music, she needed the movie, she needed to be a part of the world. And so I think it's kind of important and interesting that on total accident, our conversation ended up in a spiritual area because music can be intensely spiritual, but it can also be the biggest break from it. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. On that note, let's go right into your list. I would love to know the top five songs that make you who you are. So, okay. and this is like, I love asking this question. I think you can learn so much about a person. Don't overthink mm. it. Just give me five songs that you would say, speak to who you are, or tell your story. The playlist of your okay. life, if you will, and you know. So three of these are uh, popular music and then two of mm -hmm. them are uh, classical things because I am nothing if not both. I would not be complete with just one side and I really appreciate this sort of podcast existing to talk about things like this because I'm sure you're aware of the old BBC uh, radio show, The Desert Island Discs, where they would yes. bring on very famous singers and actors. You'd have Tallulah Bankett saying, now you got to understand that. Yeah, yeah. Just you'd have all these wonderful, like old famous people talking about I didn't about think I was going to get a Tallulah song. impression today. And I'm so wonderful. I'm so happy to have it. You never Tallulah, darling. <laughs> I was in lifeboat with Alfred Hitchcock. They lost my bracelet. She had a lower <laughs> voice as a woman than I ever will as a man, and that's my problem to deal with. But um, I, I think as like as I'm getting older, my voice is getting lower and lower, and I'm just accept mm -hmm. I'm gonna be, and I don't even smoke. I think I'm just gonna be mm -hmm. one of these like, come here, baby, bring me some candy type type one of rods mm -hmm. that are just like it's just more comfortable to speak in my lower register. Like I mm -hmm. find myself doing my like baby talk customer service voice, like when because I'm working. Because it keeps everything more protective. That's yeah. my version of it to talk up here. This is my Miss Brown voice. My actual voice when you come over to my house, when you want to watch TV or get dinner with me at my apartment. How you doing? What's going on? You, you want to eat? Like it, you, you, that sort of keeping your voice way up high is really a way of protecting it and keeping it safe. Because if you try and be loud down here, you try and scream at an audience full of drunk people, 175 drunk people, and you just sold out the audience and you try and yell like that, you're screwed. You're screwed. 
And you know that because you're a headliner, you're a great comic, and you have had to yell for three shows straight in a night for 30, 45 minutes each, and then had to say, how the fuck am I going to talk tomorrow? That is, okay, so I got out of the habit a little bit because of COVID Mm -hmm. and all of that. So I spent the last two weeks on the road, and um, I I had forgot what it was like to talk at that level, and man, I did a show in Houston and a show in in San Antonio and in both venues, the air conditioning went out. And ooh, people can only laugh so much when they're hot. There's a certain, you can just, you can, there's a certain moment where you feel a little trickle of sweat go in your booty. And then you look out at the audience and they're like, I'm having fun, but I'm ready to go when you are. You know what I mean? You can feel that. They're like, they're like as soon as this is over, we're good. Like you're just, okay. everyone was so hot together. I only get butt crack sweat when I'm nervous. That is the sign that I need to get off stage. I'm looking for a light. I'd like to see my sister or my mother, somebody who knew me when I was four. Like, I just, I need to be comforted. If I have butt crack sweat, I I, I, I want my mommy. That's where I'm at me. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, ooh, But I ooh, have five ooh. songs prepared. Okay, cool, okay, okay. I was like, but I want I was so gonna go on this whole other tangent about managing sweat on stage, but you know what? No, we'll talk about that later. I was like, what's your routine? What's your makeup routine for managing sweat? Every on stage? time I see a comedian come on stage with a rag, I feel like I'm at a Whitney Houston concert. <laughs> Bye-bye! 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 That's that's what I imagine with the rag every time. <laughs> Mm-mm. Crack is well, cheap. You know, that's where my stage name comes from. She was yelling at the paparazzi. They said, Miss Houston, Miss Houston. And she said, Miss Brown, Miss Brown. <laughs> and that's where my stage name, Miss Brown Comedy. That's, that's where it comes from. But um, the way I manage it is that um, there's two things that I use that really, really help me a lot. One thing on stage to keep the sweat down with makeup, I use this product by a stage makeup company, like for theater people, for ballet dancers and stuff. I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah. It's this company called Mayron, M-E-H-R-O-N. And they Mm. make this product called Touch Up Anti-Shine. You can put it on under your makeup or over your makeup, but basically... It does what you want foundation primer to do, which is dry up the oil without making your skin feel all rubbery and plasticky and like your makeup's gonna slide right off of it. All it does, cause it's got um, this ingredient in it that absorbs like its weight and oil, uh, that Mayron Touch Up Anti-Shine. If you're white, get it in light. If you're Latino, get it in medium. And if you're us, get it in dark. And then that's like, just it just goes on so easy, dries up all the oil. And then the other thing that I do that helps a lot. Everyone tries to get all their coverage out of a liquid or cream foundation, but if you can find a really heavy duty powder foundation, that'll help a lot because you only really want the liquids in the front of your face. But if you can really get your coverage on the sides of your face with like your powder and your bronzer and your blush and stuff, that'll help you have less makeup to sweat off. So those are my two things, Mayron Anti-Shine and then like a good strong powder foundation like Maybelline Superstay or MAC Studio Fix. That's the best thing that you can really do because you just want to oh have gosh. less liquid makeup to sweat off. You want to yeah. have less because um, and a good uh, another thing to look for when you're looking for those uh, heavy duty powders, look for something that says um, duo in it, like duo powder or um um dual finish. Is a great duo powder or, yeah 
yeah, the Lancome dual finish is great because if it's dual finish, that means you can use the powder wet and dry, which means that if the dry powder gets in contact with your wet sweat, it's not going to look like shit because the powder is already meant to get wet. You just, oh my God, you just explained that so perfectly. Now you blew my mind with Maron because I've always heard of them, but I, when you said it was a stage brand, I thought you were going to say Ben Nye Super Seal. That's my secret. You don't know about Super No, that's Seal? honestly just like rubbing alcohol and mouthwash and a spritzer. Final you don't seal. like it? <laughs> it's not my favorite. I would much rather use a setting spray by like NYX or Scandinavia that's going to provide me a finish. Like if I'm going to use a lot of powder foundation, I want a radiant setting spray. Mm, see, I've never tried. I always do my Ben Nye with liquid. So I have never tried. I've never just worn powder because I'm always mm -hmm. scared it's not going to stick. So I am going to, you know what? Next time I've got a show, mm -hmm. I am in touch up anti-shine. This is exciting. No, what okay. I'm wearing right now, what I'm wearing right now mm -hmm. is, um, you know, black opal foundation sticks. You know about yes. those? Those were designed by Sam Fine, who is one of the best black makeup artists to ever walk the face mm -hmm. of the earth. And he's done every important black woman ever. It, I'm wearing the two foundation sticks, uh, Cool Nude and Kalahari Sand, just in the middle. Just blended it out to get rid of redness and darkness under the eyes. And then it's Maybelline Superstay Powder on the sides of my face with my bronzer and blush. But there's no foundation out on my chin or on my jawline or out on the sides. It's all blended from the middle out. Mm, very mm. cool. Also, Sam Fine is just amazing. So look him up, y'all. Like Brilliant makeup artist. He's done Iman. He's done Queen Latifah. He's done Monique. He's done Vanessa Williams for years. Mm -hmm. He's everybody who's beautiful. He has done their makeup for every major event. Truly revolutionized the industry, especially for black artists. Like that's I learned how to do makeup from books. Like I uh -huh. actually went to the library and picked up Kevin Aquan's books, and, books and the Sam Fine books and the Way Bandy books. Yes. Yep, and the Bobby Brown. Yes, and yes, I had Bobby. <laughs> How funny! Okay, there was a little thread like a week ago on Twitter where people didn't realize that Bobby Brown, the makeup artist, is not Bobby Brown, as in Whitney and Bobby. <laughs> and I was like, you thought Bobby Brown from New Edition was selling you concealer all these years? <laughs> like, can you imagine just like blending your concealer? Everybody's talking all the stuff about me. Why don't love me now? Tell me why. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's Bobby, that's Bobby. Okay, one more time. Do your Whitney impression and say Bobby for me, and then we'll move on. Oh, Bobby! <laughs> Bobby! And on, and on that note, we will take it to Miss Brown's official playlist of your life. So tell me one song at a time and then I'll ask you a couple questions about them and then we'll keep it moving. So uh, do you want to start with number five or number one? Are we working which I, way? I want to start with number one. Um, this is a song that defines a lot of my childhood and then I think defines a lot of who I am now. Um, and this song is something that I listen to on the radio all the time with my mom and with my grandma. And it is Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Diana Ross written by... Um, uh, Hall, uh, 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 Simpson and, um, Simpson and... Ashford and Simpson. No. Ashford and Simpson. There we are. Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Ashford and Simpson. My, er, I wanted to say Hall and Oates, and then I realized that we were not talking about the Oak Ridge boys. Get up, oom, papa, mow, mow. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Ain't No Mountain High Enough is, like, a big deal. 
Because in my car, in my grandma's car, whenever me and my mom and my grandma were ever going anywhere, it was always the 60s, 70s station. Because that's when my mom was a little girl. And I just will never forget, like, just being in the backseat of a car and hearing, if you need me, call me. No matter where you are, no matter how far, call on my name. I'll be there in a hurry. On that you can depend on and never worry. No wind, no wind, no rain, no rain can stop me. Because, like, you heard that sound, you heard her speak, and then you heard the voice open up to sing, and you're like, whoever this is must be the most beautiful woman who's ever walked the face of the earth. Clearly, whoever sounds like that is just a model, and that's something I need to find out later. Like, the sound was so soothing and so beautiful and so secure, and then... You just know that there's a beautiful person underneath it. Because when you're singing technically correctly, you sound like what you look like because your insides are your insides. So you are who you are. Thank you for roasting the fuck out of me. Because I just, if, if you weren't so ugly, you could hit this note. <laughs> I don't know, bitch. You have, you're an average singer and you look average as fuck too. <laughs> your voice and your waist are shaped like a barrel. It's your problem. I can't help you. I don't know. My name's not Sam Adams. Wish I could. Wish I could. <laughs> okay, this character we've invented of um, just the vocal coach who roasts the fuck out of your appearance um, is now my favorite thing. Um, but, yeah. wow. I Sang very well. Shame that. about your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I love Diana Ross so much. That was the last concert I went to before COVID. And I mean, I, if I never saw another one, I... No, I was in, it was a really cool event. It was in Dallas. It was for an AIDS research charity. And they gave us, it was like announced one day before it happened. And oh, I like excited. signed up and, and I got six tickets. And it was completely free, completely free. And I took my whole family, my mom, my dad, my sister, her husband, and my little sister, and my husband. And I just was just living for it. And I love the Diana alone version of Ain't No Mountain High, but the one with Marvin Gaye, uh, the beauty of the back and forth is really, really great. Like, it's really great. But you you prefer, you said the Diana Ross version. That's your favorite, yes. right? Yes, the Diana Ross. Well, and there's, that was on her solo album, I believe. Yes. Her first solo album, because that was mostly written by um, Ashford and Simpson. And there's a lot of great songs in there. I will say my only disappointment from Ashford and Simpson is that the only Grammy they ever won for a song that they recorded was solid and i cannot imagine anyone washing their hair in the shower being like solid solid as a rock i cannot imagine that why maybe maybe my mother on her most mentally ill day in 1987 was like solid solid but no nobody nobody was singing that song so i love that for other people not so much each other the Grammys, like the Oscars, just does shit backwards, where you're just like, this is the thing, this is the thing, Monsters Ball is the thing, not anything yes. else Holly has done, butt-naked fucking Billy Bob Thornton, that's the thing, you know what I mean? Yes. Awards mean nothing. Like, they're Did usually you know that Mariah Carey only has five Grammys? And Shaka Khan has 10, and Shaka Khan's amazing, but Mariah- Billie Eilish has, has more, that's crazy. Mariah only has five. She won two when she came out, and then she won three for Emancipation of Mimi, and then that's that's it. 
she gets nominated from time to time, but they don't give her the awards. Like there are certain people that always sort of um, um, miss the awards. They get everything else. They have the fans forever, but they don't necessarily mm-hmm. pick up the Grammy or the Tony or the Emmy. Yeah, I mean, Cardi B has more Grammys than Nicki Minaj. And if this is a controversial yeah. opinion, I, I do not give a shit. Nicki's a better rapper. She just is. Cardi's, mm-hmm. that doesn't make Cardi not exist and not be talented and funny and likable and good things, you know, but yeah. like, like just, Nicki's a if you just great ask, rapper. If you just, if you ask anybody who knows anything about music, like Cardi's, like no, Cardi, Nicki's just better. She's it. Yeah. No Grammys. And Nicki Crazy, has been right? a better rap. She has been a better rapper for 15 years. Like that's You almost said bitter. You almost said a bitter rapper. And I, I said Azalea John Legend. Banks. You said a bitter rapper. That's Azalea Banks. I got everything conflated. That's a, that's a bitter rapper. <laughs> she mad. She big mad. Oh, you know what I love about Azalea is as crazy as she is, a broken clock is right two times a day. And she every now and then she says some wild shit that I'm like, okay, valid, but no. <laughs> when she read when she read drag queens on Twitter on Twitter, I was absolutely, I was like, listen, you out of your mind, you right here. <laughs> because she went on saying about like how drag can be fun, but it's not like an original art form because all people do is copy other stuff or put versions of other stuff together. And it's like, that's a valid fucking critique. It's interpretive art, not creative art. And it should be recognized as such. The same Mm. way as when I was training to be an opera singer, that's interpretive art. Felice Romani and Vincenzo Bellini wrote an opera in 1830 and I interpret it. My act is a creative art where I write it and I shape it and I find out the focuses and I perform it. But there's a difference between creative and interpretive art. There's two different levels. I think that's so valid. And I wish when it came to a lot of things that people would get their feelings out of it sometimes and be able to recategorize without assuming that you're saying something is inherently bad. Like there are a lot of people like who were so sensitive about, uh, well, you know, you're you're saying I'm not funny because I do this, this, and that. Like... Instagram comedians, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, no, your art form is editing. It is video, videography, editing, writing. Mm-hmm. It's so many things. It's not yeah. stand-up and they're different yeah. things. But like the implication is if you won't call one thing the same thing that you're implying it's bad. And it's like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's chicken and turkey are not the same thing. They're both good. But like, don't no, compare a chicken. A, it took me this the longest time. It took me years of time to realize that when people were saying that I was good at crowd work or that I was strong at improvisation, they weren't saying my material was bad. They were just saying, that's your strong suit. That's what I Ooh, noticed. You, you sensitive like me. You, you, Ms. Brown, you were a little sensitive, I can tell. Uh, well, because did people... Some people always say, oh, you're so sweet off the cuff or, oh, you just know who to talk to or whatever. It's like, I did you know that I'm not a country bumpkin and I have a degree and I can read and write and I'm not a moron and it's not all magic? Yeah. Did you know? Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of times people will compliment you on what they're lacking, but it's interesting because it makes you think that like, like one thing that's happened to me a lot, and this is just, it's funny, but it's true white comics compliment me and say, you have so much stage presence and you're so likable up there. And then black comics go, your material's really strong. And what it is, is like culturally black people are already natural orators and storytellers. We just culturally, we have to be. So you grow up in a household. The cultural background of it that we have going all the way back to West Africa before we were ever made captives and before we were ever made slaves. Absolutely. We have to when we're smart. 
Because if you want to be black in this society as an American and you need to take the edge off of it, being charismatic and being humorous is how you make them not upset over the fact that you have a book in your hand and that you've got critical thinking in your skill set. You have to take the edge off. And especially as a woman, I always had the protection of being a six foot tall man. So if anybody got a problem with me, I still had that on my side. But for you to be an intelligent, hardworking, ambitious black woman, you have to be funny to take the edge off. You got to be real sweet, real endearing to get them to not be scared anymore. It's not a choice. It's no longer yeah. a choice. And that's not something like, like white people just don't have to be as charismatic to function in society. So they see mm. me and they're just like, wow, oh my God, she just knows what, you know what I mean? And so I used to take it as them saying that my jokes weren't strong. And then mm -hmm. I would take black people saying that my writing was good is that my stage presence wasn't strong. And I think it's just like a stage yeah. presence is already a given to them. Writing mm -hmm. is already a given on this side. But when you have both, mm -hmm. you just not to toot my own horn, but toot motherfucking toot. You know? <laughs> but yeah. You know what you're It can doing. make you feel you sensitive, though, when you're getting. Doing. The audience response and the booker response and the manager response and the agent response, those are not dishonest. You know what you're doing. Yeah. So it can be, it can be one of those things that can make you feel sensitive and in your head. Uh, but taking it back to your list, man, Diana Ross, what a way to kick it off. Absolutely adore oh, her. Yeah. And you're okay. So you brought up something that I love the way she yeah. does the talking intro. Do you think that is something that is missing in music? Like more popular music should have little monologues in yes. that? Or are we yes. glad we because Do you remember how popular that was back in the seventies? There used to be that song, um, woman to woman. Barbara, this is sure. Yes. Like that's oh, yes. how, and that was uh, even originally, women didn't normally have songs like that. It was a lot of times the men in um, folk and pop music that would have the story songs. And then sort of black mm -hmm. music started to adapt it and bring it back to like sort of our gospel tradition and updating it. And that's how you get, like, get a lot of the really interesting like Ike Turner arrangements of R&B music. It's really updated yes. gospel music. It's really updated mm -hmm. gospel. Um, you get like this sort of um, emotional variety. I love that. And you know, I feel like it's really reflective in black comedy too, because if you watch black headliners, they'll have a moment where they address the audience and they like will get serious because we know to take you as more than a clown. Like you're allowed to have your moments where you speak on like essentially your bookends of like what I want you to walk away from this with. Whereas mm -hmm. like I've noticed that like that's becoming you know, people are calling it the TED Talk comedy and the clapter, but it's always been there in black art. If you look at like Paul Mooney and Dick Gregory and just like listen to any, if you listen to any black comic for more than 15 minutes, when they got time to really talk their shit and sit on the stool, you get mm -hmm. those moments of like pausing. And I think that's like relevant in music as well. Uh, I would like to see more talking moments in music. Uh, but me too, but me too. And I think that, um. Uh, uh, Nelly, I think, did a wonderful thing by having Cedric the Entertainer do a lot of his, like, interludes on the first couple albums because you got the taste of Cedric the Entertainer as a comedian being present on a rap album. And it was, like, this thing of how we are connected. Nelly did Not this? just because they're both from St. Louis, but because comedy and, uh, good comedy and good music have an intersection. I, how do I not know about this? 
Cedric the Entertainer yeah, used to no, do intros first, on Nelly's. Nelly's first couple albums, uh, Cedric the Entertainer did like some of uh, the intros, like some of the interludes on them. Just how, um, just like how on uh, a couple of the Snoop Dogg albums from the late '90s, there are some spoken interlude parts that um, sort of really glue the album together. I always thought it would be very dynamic to sort of have that thing on um, like a more modern comedy album, but it looks like from what I'm sort of hearing on the street and from what I'm seeing developing very quickly, it looks like Josh Johnson is going to uh, be delivering something like that very soon. His next comedy album is going to have like musical influences on And he's a great writer from Chicago who's been very successful. So I'm incredibly excited to see that. You know, what's so funny is there's like, I have this like mental block beef with Josh Johnson where like, I don't actually know him. He's great, but I used to dislike him just on the sheer fact that there's a Josh Johnson out of Fort Worth, Texas. That is- Ah, you hate the name, not the guy, just the name. (laughs) (laughs) And I love Josh, no, no, no. I love Josh Johnson out of Fort Worth. I love him. And Mm. he got a Comedy Central special. And like me and him, and he's just so, they're both so amazing, but different people. And because Chicago Josh is more famous, anytime Fort Worth Josh is on a show, there are, there's always someone who's like, I was expecting, and they're so upset. Mm -hmm. And it's just my, and I have begged my Josh, as like, I call it, like me and my husband be like, our Josh, I have begged him to adopt an initial or go by Joshua, you know what I mean? Because he's just so. It's so so. I finally, finally, after years of avoiding it, actually watched mm-hmm. Chicago Josh Johnson, and I was like, "Oh, he's funny as shit. He's he very funny. He is very what? funny." And something so good. The reason why he makes me he makes me very proud of Chicago, like as a place where people develop, because when he got to be a successful writer, and I've only met him like once, maybe twice maximum, but when he got to be a successful writer, when he got his name out there, he started putting out material as fast as he could. He did the Mm -hmm. half hour special. He did the album. He put out like an hour and a half of material as soon as he could because he had it. He it's funny because it. people make and you not afraid a lot of people to people who spend maybe four or five years like he did in Chicago that spend that time in LA that spend that time in other markets walk away with that much experience saying I've got a really strong writing packet I think I can figure out your voice and I have my own ironed out to the T I am just uh, some of the men from and, and women from Chicago who have been successful and walked away. The thing that's really knocked me over is their professionalism. As someone mm. who's been young and newer and get to see them on accident and maybe get to work with them, it's uh, it's really just I've been bowled over by the professionalism. That's amazing. That's so awesome that you get to like witness. Like, I mean, Chicago's an amazing scene. Like, it is really? such a fantastic space to like. You get to see the best of the best, but like it's. I, I, I'm gonna be honest. Like I kind of hate LA a little bit, like a little, little bit. Like I'm, I'm here for I what I'm here for. For Hannibal Burris and Chris Red on accident. Those are how I got those credits on fucking accident. That's how cool Chicago is. That's how active Chicago is. I got both of those credits on fucking accident. And then the next time, like Chris asked me to work with him, it was off of us meeting off of that accident. Chris is but if too. you're just He's... out and you're just around and you just work, you can meet really cool people. I am so sad that I'll never get to meet or work with Bernie Mac. That's one of the things that's really going to stick with me because I have felt like I've gotten to work with a lot of Chicago's really like just strong prides, whether it's Hannibal, whether it's Chris, whether it's Jabuki, whether it's um, um, Josh Johnson. I've gotten to work with a lot of Jabuki I've worked with. Dwayne, amazing. Dwayne Perkins. 
another mm-hmm. great writer who's incredibly professional and very smart. I've got to work with a lot of amazing people just off of being in the right place at the right time and not being a total asshole. And not every <laughs> scene, not every scene you're able to navigate like that, where you can show up and work and be nice and then good things happen pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's all it is, is just being, I mean, it's, it's working hard. It's being funny, but you know, they say, if you, if you uh, stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So if you're ready for the opportunities, when they come, they come to you uh, mm-hmm. and they can be amazing. That's awesome. That you've had such a great experience. So Diana Ross, number one, give me your number two song for me. My number two song is my number two, because it is my go-to karaoke number. And it is oh, I love this. It has defined many of my evenings, and it is All the Man That I Need by Whitney Houston. So you oh, you look karaoke. like a crazy. Okay, for know, our audio-only no. audience, I want you to dissect that, that expression and tell me why I'm crazy. Because they no. may not know if they don't know her third album. Here's why I looked at you like that. Because there is nothing I hate more in this world. As a person of average voice, I have... Uh, I, I have the most average voice. I, I just have like the regular amount of light skin backing vocals. I do a mean cast. Ah. You know what I mean? Like I'm not a singer. And I'm one of those people. I love asking this question actually. Uh, as a com- If you could choose between like having all the success in the world as a comedian or all mm-hmm. the success in the world as a musician, which would you choose? Let's say they were both on a platter in front of you. Like it was Red Bull, Blue Bill. What would you take? Because I, okay, that's a very interesting question because I feel like only recently, it's taken five years of work in stand-up. I feel like around now, I am this close, if not right there, with as good of a singer as I used to be. I feel like only now I'm as good of a comedian as I used to be a singer. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that if I got all the success that I wanted in comedy... I'd have a lot more money, but I think that if I got all the success that I wanted in music, I would have a lot more emotional security. Really? Yes. Yeah. Because you make much less money, even at the highest tier of being a classical singer, it pretty much caps out at 25 grand a night and you cannot do more than 50 nights a year and keep a voice in your throat and learn new stuff and like because there's a limit on how much you can do without a microphone over an orchestra while traveling so i think egotistically intellectually i would feel much more complete if i got everything that was on my mind as a singer as a classical singer um but as a comedian uh it's much more money because the audience is much broader and then the other thing is the confidence is a little bit more personal mm. because music got me to where i felt like my talent was something that was outside of me and something that i had to work to be worth and something that i sort of had to honor Whereas when it's just you talking, you're aware that you have a talent, but it feels much more immediate. And there's a little bit less physical technique and like athleticism in the work of it. So it's a mm-hmm. really hard answer. It's a really hard answer because they're just differently satisfying and have a different results on the other end. Because I would ultimately walk away from a career as a very successful opera singer, walk away like being upper middle class. But there's mm. like just a shot being a comic, I could be Kevin Hart. Just a shot. 
this is this is so interesting. I love asking this question. You're the first person who has enough perspective to actually answer honestly, because most people are kind of we're talking about music in the sense of such an uh, abstract idea that it's like mm -hmm. this fantasy. Like, what if I was the richest man in the universe? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like a real thing. But you brought it into classical music, and I didn't even know how much a classical musician uh, makes. My thing is like <laughs> when I think I think of like the top tier is like a Beyonce. And I compare the top tier of a Beyonce to a Kevin Hart. I'd rather be Beyonce than Kevin Hart. And I mean that because, because people throw away comedians when they're done with them. They, the things that people like, are all afraid, people are terrified to talk to Beyonce. No one has any fear to approach Jim Gaffigan. If he's Absolutely out not. in New York, if he's out in New York with his, with a couple of his kids, He's going to get spoken to. He's going to have to take pictures. He's going to have to engage. Whereas, like, when I went to the last year before COVID, when I went to the Lyric Opera of Chicago and Renee Fleming, who is the, like, top tier of classical music sopranos, she is at the highest level and just recently retired. She was, like, a row behind me at the opera, and I was terrified to speak to her. I did not turn around. I did not say, oh, it's so nice to see you here with your husband. I was just like, wow, she's really skinny in person. And that was, <laughs> that was as much as I had in me. Because, because there's this thing. Feel like because a, skill. a comedian, a, com a mm -hmm. great comedian, even the best comedians, even if all we do is talk, all we do is talk and plan ahead. Whereas somebody who sings and works with an orchestra and works with a band and it's group work and you create the show with it, there, there's a fear. Because they realize that you're a part of a collaborative effort that's bigger than everybody. But if it's just you and your smart mouth, you're nobody special. <laughs> and that's the thing is, we, like, the, it's all about making it look easy. Like the best comedian makes it look like they're just out there yes. having a conversation at random. And so everyone, yes. that's, I mean, that's also why, I mean, I love, I love the people who support me to, to, to death. But man, after show, when you're trying to just get that t-shirt sold and they just want to tell, like, here's my answer to your jokes. And I'm like, they were not questions. <laughs> Okay, do you know what my cure to that is? Do you know what my cure to that is? I love to, and it's hard to do post-COVID, but I was able to do it before COVID, and we'll see how the road works out post, but the best way to get around that is getting on a drink deal with the venue. If you can get on any percentage of the bar, if they want to talk and shoot the shit with you between shows, they'll buy drinks and they'll talk and you'll get them to, and then you'll get like money after the end of that exchange. It's not like when they come up to your merch table and maybe they don't buy a t-shirt, maybe they don't buy a sticker, but if you can get a way to just get 20% of the bar and let them keep most of it, you can make those interactions worth it. You are a bad bitch. That is some stripper technique right there. Where it's like, well, if, you, if you're gonna use my time, I'm, ooh, ooh. Mm -hmm. a bad bitch. I don't know mm -hmm. why I never thought to do that. That is exactly what strippers do. If you're not ready exactly. to go in the room, but you want to buy me a drink, then and it's exactly. I've learned it from drag queens because drag queens will have a meet and greet that you pay extra for before the show. Mm. So it's this idea of, oh wait, no, 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 no. They want to see me. My time's worth something. Not just on stage, but just as me. My time is worth something. So if mm -hmm. I can get anything out of that time and not to say that i don't want to engage with the audience just to engage with them because if you had a good time and you laughed at me 
I want to know what your life's like because that helps me write more jokes that more people like you are more excited about. So like, I want to talk to you. I want to know what you do for a living. I'm fine with that. But if I can get anything out of it, if you're going to buy another gin and tonic anyway, let me get three bucks off of it. Hell yeah. Oh my God. Love that. Genius. So if you're wondering about that face, because that like, that scraps the record during our conversation. I made Yeah, that when face. I said All the Man I Need by Whitney Houston. That, that's my Here's second song. Because you said Whitney Houston. Because you said karaoke and you said, and I know intellectually you told me you're an opera singer. But one thing I cannot stand as a person of average voice, as a lowbrow person. You know how like, when you were a little kid, that, that, that there was always that kid who was a better reader than everyone else. And the teacher would say, well, don't read ahead, honey. All right, stop reading ahead. I hate you karaoke mm. motherfuckers that can actually sing. I can't stand it. I hate high competition karaoke and hate it as in I'm so jealous of it. All right, I can't. The person who comes to karaoke Bitter. with notes and the range always makes me furious because I'm so jealous. <laughs> So it was there more like times where after I was like, there was a show that I was like booked on to do afterwards, the bar would just have karaoke and I would stay, even if it would be an inconvenience, just to let them know I can do anything it takes to entertain here. Just in case, <laughs> just in case you're not doing comedy next year. Hi, hi, hi. I'll figure it out. <laughs> you are just, uh, you are just amazing. Uh, a, 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 a jack of all trades. That's amazing. So I, I just, am like, a pimp and a hooker at the same time. <laughs> That's really what it is. That's what I'm naming the episode. A pimp and a hooker at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I'm naming it. So why that particular karaoke song? Because as a belter, you could, hear, you could hit a lot of notes. You could do any song. Yeah. Why that one? Okay, so there are two reasons for that one. One is that there is uh, like the high note run in that song that uh, he's all the man that I need, 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 I need. The high note run in that song hits the highest note in my voice that I can hit when I'm sick. So like even when I feel like shit, I can get through that song. I can hit that top A flat even if I'm not feeling amazing. So that's why it's number one on my karaoke list. And then the other reason that it's second on my karaoke list, because I like to, if I'm gonna rehearse a pop song, if I'm gonna get to know a pop song, I like it to be something that I could maybe use on its own separately. And maybe if I decide to do a one person show with music, I could throw that song in there because if you really pay attention to the lyrics and you really get it on there on detail, she could be singing about a man who's fucking the shit about her or Jesus Christ. It is <laughs> your opportunity on how you read into the lyrics of he fills me up. He gives me love, more love than I've ever seen. He's all I've got. He's all I've got in this world. He's all the man. He's all the man I need. It is your <laughs> occasion on how you read into that. And I love that as a song because some of my favorite one-liners in my act are not filthy. They make the audience have the dirty thought and make them sort of do it for me. So for them to see me sing it and then decide, do I mean this filthy or do I mean this like as a nun? It's up to them. I like putting some of the work on the audience. And so the fact that that song can do it is just really, really fun. Because I might mean it about our Lord and Savior, or I might mean it about the last dude who dug in that ass raw. You'll never know. You'll never know. That's my business. That is my business. 
because as Jasmine coughs and has to deal with her, um, as she has to deal with her clown lung, because we wear so much powder that you deal with clown lung at this point <laughs> in the game. Um, as, Wait, as is that a real there. thing where like people who wear so much powder start to mm -hmm. get? Yeah, look it up. It's called clown lung. I always say on stage, like, because I always like to smoke right before I get on stage because it brings me back into the energy. If I'm coughing when I first grab the mic, I always say it's because I wear so much makeup and I have clown lung. And then, because we're in Chicago, I can talk about John Wayne Gacy and the clown makeup and the clown lung. I, I have all my entree already set up. But oh. uh, the, the, the main reason I sing it is because those two reasons. The high note I always have and the emotional impact. It's up to you. And then the other reason, just like related, just core to music, I love that song and I love that album is because that album was Whitney Houston at her peak. Mm. Because when she recorded the Bodyguard album that came after it, she was pregnant. And so like she wasn't, she, like she was on a very clean lifestyle sort of against her will. So like 1990, when we got that album was like the last time she put the pipe down for us. Ooh. That's it. I thought you were gonna talk about like the technicality of like how pregnancy stretches out your vocal cords and stuff. You're like, no, it's the like the pipe. She was having more fun when she no, was on the pipe. Because the thing is, pregnancy changes your voice, age changes your voice, but nothing changes your voice more than smoking and drinking and drug use and bad lifestyle. Because when you do drugs every night of your life, you're telling your body that you don't want to be young and healthy anymore. And since singing mm -hmm. is an athletic exercise that takes muscles from, you know, your intercostal system, the whole middle of your body works to support you singing. If you're not healthy and strong, if you don't feel well, you're not gonna be able to do this forever. If it is very fun to watch you. you. This is a video, this is not a video, but it is very fun to watch you say this with a cigarette in your hand. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, totally, totally, totally. Cause I, I gave up my high C so I could yell at other people. I, I, I have this deep um, internal passion for screaming at drunk people, which is why I do stand up. I found out mm -hmm. about it with my family. And then I realized that comedy, I could scream at other drunk people. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's more fun to lecture others. And then to always say, I could sound a lot better if I felt like it, but to always <laughs> have this in my hand. To always have the cigarette or the wine or the excuse, I can always say, oh, no, no, you should be able to. I don't have to. Mm, okay. But even with this, with the smoking and drinking, we can still do all the man I need at, at, at any given time. It's your go-to? He's all the man that I, I need. He's all the man that I need. Ooh. It's copyright infringed, but it, it feels good. I think we're good. I think it was under seven seconds. So I'm allow it. You know what I mean? <laughs> under seven seconds is like the general what we can allow in a podcast. I had someone do like whole little Wayne verses. I'm gonna allow this for sure. Thank you. Okay. I well, love mostly that. because I'm not rapping to myself in the middle of a gym class in high school. Oh Just my God. rapping, rapping little to your... Wayne to themselves. That's a miserable life. That is an empty Keep... life. People rapping to themselves in public is like very, it, it triggers me for some reason. And it was so funny because it's just, it's always just people just like jumping around and saying lyrics. And when I was in East Atlanta, I was like, oh my God, even the white people do that here. This is terrifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to get out of here. Which, okay, I have to ask you a question. I related to this because you just said the white guys in East Atlanta. What happened to Wiggas? Where did they all go? 
where did all the wiggas go? Because when I was like nine, like in 2007, wiggas were everywhere. They, like, yes. if, like you could get, you could find a wigga easier than you could find directions on where you were trying to go. Like there were just, everywhere as far as the eye could see. And it wasn't just Eminem. Like, mm-hmm. where did they go? Did they all oh, become, like, you. did they like get good haircuts and like join Congress? Where did all no. the wiggas go? The funny thing is they swung what would seem like the opposite direction. They went far right Republican. Everybody who was really? a Wigga in 2007, 2008, whatever, they, what happened was, is they had this made up idea of blackness, this Malibu most wanted thing in their heads and would tell mm-hmm. them why, and scare white people around them into thinking that they knew everything there is to know around blackness. Then they'd get around actual black people and try to say the N word and take liberties they had no business taking. Then they get cussed the fuck out or knock the fuck out. And they'd be like, you're trying to tell me what to do. You're trying to silence me. First Amendment rights. And they just, they like, wigger, like those type of guys that like that kind yeah. of guy is usually the most fragile and the most oh, entitled yeah. and the most baked in their white privilege. So they swung real hard the opposite way. They're the guy that you see who dresses like vanilla ice, like how exactly mm-hmm. how vanilla ice dresses now. Uh, they have a ton of tattoos and... They're like, well, why can't I have white pride? You know, well, why can't I? Have... <laughs> they no, I, they, that's the smartest smart... thing you just fucking said that they're overdosed on white privilege. Because isn't that the ultimate white privilege is to act like and dress like the most one of the most oppressed members of our society to dress and act like a black man and to completely uh, uh, take on that culture and no, you're not going to get any of the negatives out of it. That mm-hmm. is the most and take white it off when it's time. Shit. Take it off when they're ready. And that's the thing is a lot of a lot of people treated blackness like it was the way that a lot of people treated the punk movement in the 80s where they were like, let let me just be black for a few bad years, a few tough years. Yeah. And then when it's when it's time to be white or like when I, like those are the kind of guys who like, you know, weren't actively seeking friendships or relationships or like real grounding in black culture now of course there are plenty of those guys who that's just who they are but the ones who would like pop up out of the middle of the suburbs and then all of a sudden be fubo fubu this and fubu that they just wanted a way to be different and you know what i mean they just like like kid kid rock is the perfect example the best example it's so funny how fake they were like these white guys were so convinced that they were black they thought that if they fucked their white girlfriends they'd have a mixed kid like that is how (laughs) black they were convinced they were in the early aughts oh my god i feel like every light-skinned or mixed person has a really unique relationship with this because those kind of guys and girls would look at us as a target to like try and prove their blackness They'd be like, oh, well, I'm, I act blacker than Jasmine. And I'd be like, you're equating blackness with ignorance and using slang. And that has, and I was like, you know, like I was little Miss Encyclopedia bitch. Like I come out and just be like, actually your opinions of blackness are rooted in stereotypes and your own privilege. And I would make white kids and black kids mad because like the cool black kids would just accept them because they just didn't want to have any problems. And so that would make these, these like. I hate the, the expression wigger is, is appropriate in this sense. They would oh, make totally. these wiggers feel so elevated. They would feel how, like in this great space, but their relationships weren't actually real. That's, no. that's so funny. No, it's very, it's, it's totally interesting because you look at um, these groups of black men and these groups of white men that shared this unity for a moment in time, and they both share very similar goals. Hmm. To be perceived mm. as the other and to have all the rights and none of the negatives of the other. 
because so many black men who are so vocal about their oppression and what's wrong with them couldn't give a shit what any black woman has to say and just want the benefits of white manhood without any of the accountability. I'm always so tiptoeing when it comes to criticizing black men because I have a white partner. And I feel like no one wants to hear what I have to say about it. They're like, mm-hmm. well, you don't have an opinion. Your opinion's not a value because you're not suffering in the trend. Like it's, it, it's, it's frustrating the black community because it feels like we can't. in the lane of your experiences and your family, you're a mm-hmm. lot less, you're a lot less uh, 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 likely to get a negative reaction because no one can tell you that the guy that you dated acted differently than how he acted. No one can tell you that your uncles and your dad were different than how they were. But if you want to make broad general statements about black men this and black men that and not be married to one, th- that's when they want to get into moments. But if you like are sort of talking about things that have happened to you and anyone wants to give you shit about that, they're a moron and they're an asshole because anything that's all that like actually happened is on the table for discussion. Whether or not yeah. you want to is your call. But if it actually happened, if you were actually there, then it's on it's up for discussion. I agree. I agree. I think I've just kind of like tiptoed around it in spaces, but like I'm also just kind of it's so funny because I've talked a lot about my interracial marriage in my comedy and it's fun to funny to me mm-hmm. for, to talk about it, but I'm kind of over it at this point because it also gives a certain type of white person this um over familiarity with me and they feel like oh well she must be one of them like no i'm absolutely one no. of the ones you don't want to fuck with no please don't and then the please interaction do not. gets too casual the interaction gets too comfortable and you're hearing things that you don't want to hear something that i've had to uh, talk with i haven't really brought this up with other uh, with uh, black women uh, in my mm-hmm. sort of cohort, but something I brought up with black men a decent amount and sort of my group of people who started when I did was you notice how different it is when you say the N word around white audiences and when there's a more black majority, because I found personally, a lot of times if I use the N word in my set once or twice over 15 minutes in a white majority room, a lot of those white people feel empowered to use that word in conversation with me after the set because I made it comfortable. I made it chill. If I was the only black person that was there all night in their uh, 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 perspective of my performance, I made that a not big deal. And Mm. so then when I have to deal with it and then I have to take some sort of accountability for them taking it as not that big a deal, it makes you really readjust what you say on stage, where you improvise, where, where yeah. sort of the the, um, the the track that you'll let your mind take, because you realize you are responsible for a little bit more than just yourself, and it takes years of experience and a couple bad nights to find that out. You don't you don't know that in the beginning. You have no reason to know that in the beginning. I I'm, I don't have a hard policy on the N word on stage, but I have been using it less and less and less because of how white the audience have gotten and i just like there it wasn't the n-word but yeah, i had COVID this joke about bitch, white women touching my hair don't have money to fucking leave 
a lot of black people don't have fucking excess casual disposable income to go see live entertainment now because COVID was a bitch and it hit us the hardest. It hit us and Latino people the hardest with in terms of employment, in terms of actually getting infected. So who's going out right now are the people who aren't scared or the people who are vaccinated, people have easy access to vaccination. And they're white. I have noticed that. Crowds have gotten whiter recently and that has been Mm -hmm. a a weird thing. But like it it wasn't the N word. I, I said it, I had a joke about someone touching my hair and I have this, I haven't done this in forever. And I don't know why I didn't record this. And this is one of my friend Rachel Hall's favorite bits of mine that I did. Oh, Rachel's hilarious. I Rachel love Rachel. for me once. Rachel is amazing. Isn't she amazing? She is amazing. We were roommates and in Austin before. a great writer. She's a wonderful yes. performer, but a great writer. Oh, for sure. The way her mind works is just, she's so brilliant and so smart and so focused. And That is a bright like, we have, woman right there. That is a bright woman. Oh my God. She's amazing. She's amazing. She's amazing. We were roommates for a little bit. And I mean, you know, she did one time use my Kate Spade towels to wipe up some barbecue sauce. But like, I still like, that's still, I still love her. She did love her with everything. She didn't know Kate Spade was dead. She didn't know. They had little, it was a lemonade theme. It was like around the time lemonade was released. It was supposed to be a lemonade theme kitchen. All black women over 30 have themed kitchens. This is the thing we do. Your grandma didn't have a little Eiffel Tower or some shit. No, my you grandma's know? kitchen theme was birds. See, she had a theme though. You can't yeah, have no Mitch Mass ass. My kitchen. grandma married a bisexual guy that my mom that was like twenty five years younger than her that Ooh. my mom had dated first when she was like sixty. So he redecorated the whole situation. This is wonderful. How do, okay, so so your mom bring home brings home this guy, and then your your grandma's like, I'll take it from here. Yeah, okay, so this is the situation. This is the situation. So after I was born, I was like a baby. My mom was like, Well, I got knocked up with Matt as a hookup on vacation, so I don't have a boyfriend. Maybe I should try to have a boyfriend. So she starts dating this guy who's her age, my mother's age, and he's a, he's a florist, a floral arranger. And he uh-huh. already has like a son and an ex-wife and stuff. But my mom doesn't care about that. She thinks he's cool. And then she says, well, if I have this baby and I'm going to have to raise him, I want to raise him in Kentucky. So me and my mom moved to Kentucky when I was a baby to go where our family is from. And then little floral arranger keeps visiting my grandmother because he already has the address. <laughs> and then... And then before my grandma married him, she had full body plastic surgery to be able to be with a guy who was half of her age. So over the course of the year and a half that they dated, my grandma had a neck lift, a brow lift, a full face lift, a tummy tuck, and then had the fat from her stomach put in her tits so she could marry a guy who she had children older than. So when you want to know why I'm vain, it's because I spent a lot of time with my grandma and there might be a man around. <laughs> Your grandma is just an amazing character. Oh and my the God. funny thing oh, is, I look like her after the surgery. I look like her <laughs> after she got everything fixed. So I will never get plastic surgery. I'll never even dye my hair. Because like whenever I see gay guys with the pumped up lips or the brow lips, it makes me think of my grandmother. I don't see a hot young guy. I see my grandma when I see those big fake lips. So I'm not turned on. 
My dick is not hard. My dick isn't soft. My dick is like just singing Judy Garland songs. It's, it's home. It's welcome. <laughs> you're, you're more comforted than allowed. How I love you. How I love you. My. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, so we are winding down and we've got to get through your list. We are going to drop the advice segment because you've given us so many pearls of wisdom on everything from Christmas albums to uh, choosing a karaoke song to the what happened to to white men who affected blackness you know before we, we close we the segment i want to list like my uh, one classical section that i had to just educate no the audience a give bit. me the rest of your five we're gonna get okay, to your the five last bit of my up. five the, okay i'll be briefer about these number three i need on three my five. four and five yeah number, number three. three on my five is me and mrs jones not by billy paul but by Sandra Bernhard when she recorded it for her one woman show that she made into a feature film in 1990, because she did it sort of as she did the song as a black cabaret singer, not as herself. So it was acting and it was character. It was a whole moment. What? Are you talking about a comedian? Yes, Sandra Bernhard. Her first feature film that she did of her act was called Without You, I'm Nothing. And it came out in 1990 or 91. And one of the sequences in it was her sitting on a stool in an orange dress as a cabaret singer singing Me and Mrs. Jones, but like as a lesbian love song. And I have always been fascinated by it because it's a beautiful R&B song that's about an affair. And then she said, I'm white and I'm still going to sing it. I'm a lesbian and I'm still going to sing it. I'm a stand up and I'm still going to sing it. I'm going to make it about something because songs, stand up, jokes, one liners, it's all story. It's all emotional. Did you just upload this to YouTube? Because literally two days ago, the video got uploaded. No, this feels like your work for a while. That's been online for a while. Someone, oh no, she redid it. No, this is not two days ago. This is July twenty fourth, two thousand twelve. Okay. Well, it Uh, was the two thousand twelve upload of the video from the nineties. This is so fascinating. Okay, Mm -hmm. again with the cross section of comedy and music. That is because I love stand up comedians who do music as well. Uh, uh, Sandra Bernhard or Mario Cantone. That's my idea of a perfect headlining evening because it's dramatic, it's funny. There's one liners, there's stories, there's impressions, and there's music and a band, and it's all it's a whole thing. So that's why she's number three. Okay, we need to move along, but I got to ask you: Is that something you want to? Do further into your career, possibly bring more music? Absolutely. Because it makes all the comedy funnier and it makes the expectations for the music lower. So mm. anything you say that's cute is way funnier. And if you sing well, you've sung much better. So absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That is true. That is true. I'm like, with most guitar comedians, and I'm a little bit of a hater. You know this. I'm a middle child. I'm like, take the guitar away and make him say just those words out loud. How funny is you're smart. <laughs> I just, you know, I, mean? I can see, I can see the strings attached to the puppet, but I go, that's a, that's a good puppet though. I should get one. Like, you know what I mean? The audience Precious. loves it. <laughs> Precious. But you're All above right. it somehow by the end. Oh, I'm full of shit. And one day I'll do it. I probably will release <laughs> some type of music, you know, in my best Cassie voice. Uh, Whisper talking on the record like Jenna Aoko because that's vocally where I'm at. Okay. Listen, we just had an amazing movie be very successful off Billie Holiday. 
So if you just want to talk about how it'll be fine. Because <laughs> we're apparently absorbing that kind of sound. It's kind of sound. <laughs> so it's all right. It's all right. I like um, that Billy Holiday movie, by the way. It's good. Yes. And if it's you on like Hulu. It, you hate it. Enjoy it. It's on Hulu. I like it. it. Okay. Uh, number and four. Now my last two selections. My last two selections are classical. Okay. So my last two selections. The first one. It's not a song. It's more like a section. The last two were both just sections. Because opera, like, there are songs in opera. They're called arias, where they're basically, like, monologues that you s deliver by yourself. But the two uh, segments I chose, the first one, it's the last third of the first act of one of my favorite operas, which is called Der Rosenkavalier, awfully called Strauss. Um, Der Rosenkavalier, the Knight of the Rose is uh, sort of how it translates to English. And the last third of the first act is like this 20 minute long breakup scene that is so romantic and so detailed between this younger man and this older woman. If you have any idea what the words mean, all you do is listen to it and cry. The young man says things like, you push me away with your hands because you can't do it with words. And the woman says things like, you know, I can't control my feelings. Some days I'm up, sometimes I'm down. I don't know where I'm at. And it's just so, so, it's this 25 minute long breakup scene. It's just so romantic. It reminds me of my high school breakup. And for that, it'll always be a part of the uh, soundtrack of the rest of my life. Because that guy spoke German, and this opera's in German, and that sort of scene between this wise person and this person who doesn't know too much is really, it's been a big part of my uh, life since I was 17. Oh, wow. Beautiful. It's beautiful. And then the last section, because this is about, you know, um, music and murder, the mm -hmm. last one. My last section is Act Three of uh, Verdi's Otello. This is an adaptation to opera of um, Shakespeare's Othello with, you know, Desdemona oh. and Othello and Cassius and Iago and all that. Um, but it was adapted into an opera in the late, in the early 1800s, like 1884. And Act Three is my favorite because it's basically Othello and Desdemona arguing for 45 minutes. It's her saying, I didn't cheat on you, and him saying, of course you did. And then her saying, I don't know why you're crying, and I see these tears, and the tears that come from your eyes move me. And I, you, this is the first time I've ever cried from pain. I always cry from joy, and your emotions have brought me to cry from pain. It's these deep, beautiful, stunning, emotional words set to the most gorgeous music. And it's all set to this contrast and this conflict between this white uh, noble woman and this mm -hmm. black moor, this black army general who is rough and tough and she's, uh, you know, blonde and smooth. And it's the interaction of their uh, uh, relationship under conflict it's some of the hottest singing. It's some of the most fiery, emotional singing. Ooh, that sounds amazing. And also, I love Othello as a play. Although, have you ever seen the movie Oh? No. Oh, I hate it. Oh. <laughs> it is got oh. a young Mackay Pfeiffer, uh, Josh Harnett, and Julia Stiles in it. It is a 90s classic, and I just revisited recently for a different podcast. And it is a retelling of Othello set in the early 2000s 
based around a high school, a rivalry between high school basketball players. And oh. Othello is played by Mackay Pfeiffer. So it's still a black guy in this white setting. And uh, God, they're, they're, the way they try to string this story together, but make it modern. I'll just I'll just give this spoiler that like you know you know Othello kills but Desdemona by the end but yes and in his moment of like realizing what he's done he goes you don't understand she was a hoe man and that lie <laughs> I fucking it makes me yeah. so angry so I, I'm all for good adaptations of Othello yes. so I would like to see this to get O out of my mind because I've yes, been saying the line, Italian, <laughs> the line that he asks her is are you not just a dirty hooker are you not just a vile courtesan and she says no I'm a baptized Christian a vital a vile courtesan so terrible so I like, this is an amazing list. You have taken me on such a journey. This is the first time anyone on the podcast has mentioned classical music at all. So we've got like two R&B heavy hitters and then a complete wild card with Sandra Bernard. I was not uh, expecting that at all. Uh, who I really liked on Pose, even though Ryan Murphy, I, I have like a personal vendetta against Ryan Murphy. He just, As you he should, because he makes beautiful things stupid and ugly. Yes. Beautiful, smart things, dumb and ugly. Tell me about the time you were personally victimized by Ryan Murphy. Go ahead. Um, when I had to sit through FX Feud, because I already know everything about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And for him to have Susan Sarandon deliver that subpar performance when she's capable of knocking shit out of the park with better lines. No respect. No respect. Don't you fuck with one of my divas. Because as a gay man, I live and die by my chick flicks. Like, all I want to see is Julia Roberts in a big house unable to make a decision. That's all I want. <laughs> just a perplexed Julia. <laughs> yeah, just like her rushing from like one veranda to the other in a daze is all I need to be happy. And so for you to deliver that just sort of boring Betty, uh, Susan Sarandon, Betty Davis, where she barely did the voice. Sorry, because I just feel like every, every woman in America is getting a chance to do my divas. And it really hurts me because like, okay, they had Renee Zellweger with the Judy Garland movie. And let me tell you something, I, I was born in a trunk myself with my daughter, Lorna, and my son, Joe. We were all born right in my trunk here. I've been doing Judy since I was a little kid. Now they're doing a Tammy Faye movie. I am so pissed. Tammy Faye from PTL back in the 80s. Oh, Jim and I were just so nervous about this ministry. We didn't know it was going to happen like this. Like, everyone is getting a chance to be my divas when I've been being them in the privacy of my own bedroom. And I'm bitter. I'm bitter. I'm glad I have my music. I'm glad I have my things come down with. Let me just tell you. In popular culture, en general, once we get past Diana Ross and Sandra Bernhardt, I'm bitter because they're playing my parts. They're playing my parts. Your time will come. All right, sit your young ass down. I'm kidding. You're you're absolutely gonna have your time. My like mine is not as deep, but it, actually, okay. Did you watch the show Hollywood on Netflix? Yes, I loved it. I had loved problems it. with how they represented shit, but I loved that they were showing that part of movie history because so many people don't know. I think if everybody who is involved in the Free Britney movement knew about Studio System Hollywood, they'd chill out. Oh, oh my gosh. Here's the thing. My only pet peeve is 
with the way they depict the very last episode, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, go ahead and fast forward if you don't want to hear this, guys. Um, although you had a year and some fucking change and you were home for a year, so you should have watched everything that existed already. Anyways, by the now. way, by now, the way the show ends, what they decide to do is instead of telling the real story of what happened to Rock Hudson, who tragically died of AIDS, still in the closet, instead they have him in the 40s announce that he is gay and he is with his beautiful black male uh, partner and they are together at the Oscars and they share a big hug and a kiss and everyone cheers in the 40s. So like, I just, in half my brain is like, I just know there's some dumbass Gen Z child that's like, they fixed homophobia in 1942. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> They're gonna think it was always like that. I mean, I even have to deal with that here in Chicago where like new um, gay comics or non-binary comics will start and they'll think that the scene has always been so accepting of mm -hmm. people like us. And it's like, no, I did a ton of work to get them to realize that a manic gay teenager can make them money. Like there are a few other comics like Jake Knoll and like other people in Chicago and who have moved out and gone to do amazing things other places that have really moved the needle to get people to accept queer and non-binary comedy. And so for people to think that everyone's always just loved gay people and that everything's always fine, or that, oh, well, the way it is right now is the way it's always been, is a very dangerous mm -hmm. way to look at things. Very dangerous way to look at things. Because if, if Rock Hudson had the ability to come out in 1957, he'd be alive right now. He'd be alive I call right everything now. the 40s. He'd be getting I just call AFI it tribute. And he'd be alive right now for doing beautiful yeah. movies for 20 years. Yes. And then that also on top of the entire fabricated story of Meg, the black actress that like doesn't exist in this universe. But she has this scene where she sits across from Hattie McDaniel. And Hattie McDaniel's like, I, you know, telling the true story of how she did not get to accept her Oscars and had to yep. like go out a side door. And in yep. this movie, this is the part, this is the part where I said, I will never let Ryan Murphy fuck with me again. I still watch Pose, but never again. I will never let Ryan Murphy fuck with me again. Because there's a scene where the young black actress walks up to the front door and the man says, we're not allowing colors in here. And he said, she says, sir, get out of my way. And that just ended racism. She that just was said, excuse it. me, and got her award. Oh, oh, you mean to tell me that like Dorothy Dandridge, Hattie McDaniel, Lena Horne, all of them, if they had just said, sir, get out of my way, there wouldn't have been any racism. You mean you my grandma should have just been meaner? <laughs> That's all it took. Let's she should have walked up with her with her new titties and said, sir, get out of my way and changed the world. <laughs> I'm obsessed with your grandma, by the way. I'd like- You should be. You should be, she's folklore. She was folklore in her own time. She is the queen of the ring. Like you don't even, there are no rings and there's no Lord. There's just a queen. There's just, there's just downtown Judy Brown. Cause that was her name when she was alive. People called her downtown. Like it was her first name. That's, I feel like that implies sluttiness, but in a positive way. She liked to shop. <laughs> she was always downtown. She liked to shop. <laughs> Possible alternate title, because I like how suggestive that is. Possible. Okay. This has been an amazing episode. I'm so excited. Like, you were the perfect person to kick back off this season and just get me right back into it. Thank you so much for doing my show. Where can people who are, of course, going to be now obsessed with you find you on all the things? Where can they find you? 
anyone who had a good time listening to this episode can follow up with me more on Ms. Brown Comedy at Instagram. That's my Instagram handle. That's also my TikTok handle, MS Brown Comedy, Ms. Brown Comedy. Also, my website is MsBrownComedy.com. But if you pay attention to my website and my Instagram stories, you are definitely going to be aware of all my upcoming shows at places in Chicago like Comedy Bar and Lincoln Lodge and Laugh Factory, which are, you know, the major performance venues in town. So, you know, if you're looking to have a good time and you're looking to have a good time in Chicago, I would definitely love to be part of it. And if you pay attention to my social media, you'll be able to see where all my live shows are. Awesome. Well, make sure you follow Miss Brown Comedy on all of the things. And also check out the, uh, you guys are still working on the web series right now. Um, love yeah. Yeah, we still have a few episodes left on the Explain series before we tie that up. And that is the uh, I Love Aretha Franklin page on YouTube. And the Explain series is what I directly contribute to. There's a lot of amazing concert footage and a lot of other, you know, interesting educational content on there. But the Explain series is my main contribution. So if you want to, if you want a voice lesson from Miss Brown, you can definitely get it from the Explain series on YouTube on the I Love Aretha Franklin YouTube channel. So follow Miss Brown Comedy at all of the things. Check out the website and keep up with those Insta stories to see where we can see you in and around Chicago or on the road, wherever we end up. Um, for those know. of y'all, would you say boo? You never know. You never know. I'm like well, a rash. I could show up where you least expect it. <laughs> Thank you guys again for listening to Rhythm and Bay Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. It is the thing that keeps me motivated uh, to keep doing this because I want to quit every day. I'm kidding. I don't. But <laughs> I need the motivation. Like, I need the external validation, folks. Tell your friends that you like the show. Tell them to follow on Instagram at Rhythm and Bay Podcast, on Facebook at Rhythm and Bay Podcast, and on Twitter at Bay Rhythm and. They won't let me fix it. So just remember, it's Bay Rhythm and on Twitter. <laughs> and share this episode like six months um but i really appreciate you guys thank you so much again i'm your host jasmine ellis you can find me at all the things at jasmine ellis comedy thanks again and keep it smooth